This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Sometimes I end up with more than one piece of true crime news. And I thought, I held off on this. There, uh, this is actually kind of two pieces of news in one. Um, I held off on it because I was waiting for there to be an arrest. And there was an arrest this morning. The, th- there was actually an arrest a little while ago. But then there was another arrest. We covered this case in August of 2020. The episode name was, was it Deep Dark Secrets? Uh Yes. Talked about this there. That's a pretty long episode where we talked about uh, some some different stuff that had happened in Bardstown, Kentucky. Right, and um, it's actually uh, memorable to me, at least. Uh, so it was summer season, deep dark secrets, uh, season one, episode thirty two, and well, it was released either eight eleven or eight thirteen of twenty twenty, and it was one of the first cases. I guess maybe with the first five-ish cases after we uh, wrapped keys, right? Right. Um, and so those cases are interesting because it was stuff like we were super interested in, right, at the time. Yeah, we were debating because I had set out just to do the key story. We did that together, and then you wanted to know if we wanted to keep going. And, and we started pulling cases we were really interested in. And at the time, Bardstown, uh, there was a podcast called Bardstown that we used some, some pieces of to do that. And we were only focused on things that they, it's like aspects of them were covered, but really they, people didn't get deep on them. And this was really hard to do because of the way the case kind of played out. Right. Yeah. This, case is actually like four cases it it focuses around the disappearance of crystal rogers and then there's the murder of her father and then there were some other unsolved incidents in the same area where a police officer had been killed and then there was a mother and daughter who had been killed so we were sort of talking about that and later on we briefly mentioned that there was an update in the case where some remains had potentially been found and there were some searches being done. I don't know the name of that particular episode, but in August of this year, there was an arrest. And uh, so the arrest at the time, it was a guy named Joseph Lawson, who is 32 years old. He was indicted on conspiracy to commit murder and tampering with physical evidence And that indictment indicated that it was for crimes on July 3rd and or July 4th of 2015. And that's when Crystal Rogers was last seen. So his attorney ends up confirming those charges are related to Rogers' case, but he didn't say anything else about it. Those charges were actually filed in July, but the proceedings were delayed because Joseph Lawson had been hospitalized. Right. And so he was paralyzed in a motorcycle crash. And uh, the speculation, at least from the media, was that the hospitalization was related to that. Okay. So at this point, he's 
behind bars. I don't know if that means he's in a medical ward, if he's literally in the jail. I saw some indication that maybe he had been moved to a federal facility and then he, like something said he was in jail. But when he showed up in court, um, he actually appeared from the hospital bed uh, by phone. He's due back in court in October for some kind of pretrial conference. And there's a $500,000 cash bond on one of his charges. And then I believe he has a second bond around uh, for the tampering with evidence that's like 50000 or something. He has a pretty lengthy criminal record. But Crystal Rogers' family have said, um, even though they, they've kind of declined to comment on the advice of investigators here, they have said they did not know Joseph Lawson. There's a special prosecutor in this case named Shane Young. Joseph Lawson is the first arrest made in connection to Crystal's disappearance. So when she went missing, she was a mother of five. She was 35 years old. and She was reported missing on July 5th, 2015. And according to these indictments, it's sort of the days right before that, uh, the July 4th weekend, that uh, Joseph Lawson is accused of having done something there. And I do see a photo now of him sitting uh, before a magistrate being, he's in his wheelchair. So since she disappeared, the only suspect that was ever named was Brooks Huck. And she shares a child with Brooks Huck, but he has never been charged. Now, Anna Whitesides, who is Brooks's grandmother, she was connected to the case as well. The state said back in 2016 that they believed that a car registered in her name had been used to dispose of Crystal Rogers' body. She got brought into court on that, but she refused to testify. And within the first year or so, I think it's about eight months of Crystal Rogers' disappearance, Brooks Huck's brother, Nick Huck, was fired from the Bardstown Police Department for interfering with the investigation. And early on, a guy named Danny Singleton, who was described as a friend and employee of Brooks Huck, he had faced 38 counts of perjury for lying to detectives during the investigation. He ends up pleading guilty to lesser charges of false swearing. Uh, But we talked about this case in 2020, and then the FBI took over the investigation into Crystal Rogers' disappearance, which was one of the reasons it kind of moved up on our radar. Uh, Since then, there have been multiple searches in Bardstown, including one in late 2022. And that was a search focused on the farm where Crystal was last seen alive. Uh, Multiple people are carrying this story right now. Um, If you, if you just look up Brooks Huck's name, you'll see uh, that, that it's expanded beyond Joseph Lawson's arrest. WLKY had it. WHAS11 had it. I think that's uh, the best sources I've seen. I know CBS News uh, was also carrying it this morning. Uh, But there's a second part to this story, and that's the reason we're talking about it today. Because in my mind, Joseph Lawson, I thought things might develop, and I might mention this around Halloween, um, But that's not all that happened. Uh, Her former boyfriend, Brooks Huck, was arrested by the FBI uh, out of Louisville, Kentucky. Um, He has long been considered the main suspect or the primary person of interest, depending on which article and time you read. Uh, 
And I have not seen the charges yet because this literally just happened about uh, about 20 minutes before we started recording. Uh, but they issued a statement and it just said, in coordination with the Kentucky State Police, other local and federal law enforcement partners, FBI Louisville has been laser focused on our commitment to hold accountable those that were responsible for the disappearance of Crystal Rogers. Today, we take a significant step in making good on that promise. And they arrested Brooks Huck. Uh, and again, I don't know what the charges are yet. The indictment is sealed. Um, additional details will end up being revealed when he's arraigned. He'll, he'll be arraigned in early October in Nelson County Circuit Court. He has never had any charges related to this, but this is the second arrest and in Crystal Rogers' disappearance in the span of a month-ish. Right. Kind of a and, big uh, deal. The, the first one, uh, Joseph Lawson, uh, he was indicted on charges of conspiracy to murder and complicity to tampering with physical evidence, um, according to the court records. And there's some information. Uh, I, th- I believe that's what the um, $500,000 bond and then the $50,000 bond before but um, prosecution, the prosecution is also seeking to revoke. Uh, oh, uh, he is on probation, I think. Okay, so they're seeking to revoke his probation, um, which uh, in the event that happens, you know, he would be held. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen with all that, but it, it doesn't seem to me like he's going to be getting out on a $500,000 cash bill, right? I, I just doubt that. Um yeah, because, I don't. I don't find him to be that guy. No, because that. Uh, my understanding is that is like you produce five hundred thousand dollars cash. It looks like it from the way they've got it written up. Um, it's uh, there's a number of reasons it's that high. So he got indicted the first week of September by a grand jury in Nelson County. He's been back and forth between a medical center and Grayson County Detention Center. And he has a lawyer out there named Kevin Coleman. Did say that these charges were related to Crystal Rogers. But if you like, if you look at uh, Joseph Lawson's criminal history, he had a domestic violence summons in May of 2015. There was some kind of warrant served on him for another state in August of 2017. He got a felony receiving stolen property in January of 2018. He had possession of a controlled substance, uh, and it was identified as methamphetamine, in June of 2018. He had another fugitive warrant from another state in January 2018. Possession of a controlled substance, methamphetamine, and a probation violation in July of 2018. He had a fourth-degree assault, a first-degree strangulation, and a second-degree facilitation of strangulation and an unlawful imprisonment charge in July of 2020. He had a burglary and a misdemeanor mischief charge in August of 2021. He had a theft by deception, which is a a check-related charge, a non-payment of court costs and a probation violation, that was served on him at that time, but it's actually from January of 2020. He had a first degree criminal uh, mischief, a second degree criminal mischief. He had a burglary charge, a first degree criminal trespassing charge, a persistent uh, felony offender, which is their habitual statute. He had a uh, probation violation, 
Um, he had some restitution issues, and that's all in January of 2022. And then he got hit with a another habitual fel- or persistent felony, that's what they call it out there, uh, April 12th of 2023. Uh, you know, so he's got uh, a lengthy uh, criminal record that is contributing to that bond. Um, I know that the FBI's statement uh, indicated that more information would be released uh, when uh, Brooks makes his court uh, court appearance, I guess, next week. But um, WHAS uh, with WHAS 11, which is an ABC affiliate, I assume they're in Kentucky. Uh, Sarah Magan, M-A-G-I-N, she released a blog or a blurb on their website this morning that indicate according to court documents, he was charged with murder and uh, this is Brooks, uh, her uh, Crystal's boyfriend. He was charged with murder and tampering with physical evidence. uh, And he, his bond is set at $10 million in cash. Okay. I hadn't seen. Uh, He's also been ordered. So his, it, he's his bond is set at ten million dollars cash, and he's been ordered to not have any contact with the family of Crystal Rogers. Um, but in the very same article, it does indicate that no, it, it says the exact same uh, statement that you said about the FBI not releasing the information. So I don't really know, um, but the source is you know fairly credible, I think. And uh, that would be like the local news station there, right? Yeah, it's it's one of the local stations. Right. And so it's probably legitimate. Uh, I guess they've seen part of whatever. Anyway, uh, so, you know, that's a very serious charge. Um, I don't know why they aren't, you know, putting that. The FBI isn't putting that straight out there, but that's what we've got to kind of go off of. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting about Brooks Hogg, and I don't have a lot more to say like on this current situation. I have followed him for a while. He's one of those people that I have run down a lot of information on because I've always been curious like what happened there that the investigation sort of broke down. And when I, I dug into him, I found, you know, he had this weird – a commercial vehicle violation in, I think it was in 2021. He ends up getting arrested on that in 2022. And then he sort of, whenever that type thing happens, the news reports on him for a few days. And in that pop, in, I think it's November, it might be WHSA. I, I don't remember exactly the source of this, but there was something about he had filed for a permit with, Nelson County planning and zoning to open a daycare. And I was just like, what? Um, he wow, really? Yeah. I, I think the situation was he was either buying or part of a group that was purchasing a church and that they were going to be opening a daycare. And what was strange about it is the, the church that he had, been in on doing this with was right across the street from where Sherry Ballard, who's Crystal Rogers' mom, was running her own business at the time. And she was just like, I, you know, I don't, the new, in the news, she said, I don't want to see that guy every day. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because it has never been a secret um, from the time that Crystal disappeared in uh, 2015. I believe he was named as a suspect 
within months, even though like her body hasn't been found. Uh, the circumstances surrounding her disappearance were such that like she was, I believe, almost immediately presumed to have been uh, the victim of some sort of foul play because her car was found on the side of the road. I don't remember if the keys were just in it or if the car was running or what, but it was a weird situation, right? Yeah. And so um, the police were never shy about saying, look, you know, Brooks is the main suspect in her disappearance. Uh, so, you know, her her mom's concerns were warranted, right? Especially after in 2016 when Tommy Ballard, who was Crystal's father, was shot to death on a hunting trip with his grandson, right? Yeah. And I, I believe that it remains unsolved, right? Correct. Uh, there's a lot of uh, information out there about that that lends to different things having happened. But that was, oh, that was so terrible that what happened there as far as like the child being with him and everything. Yeah. Um, but. And it, her car was found in case this refreshes your memory. It had a flat tire. The doors were unlocked and pretty much everything she would ever use in her day-to-day activities was inside the car. Right. Like Somebody her, like dropped her car off there. Yeah. Oh yeah. So it was just, it was, it was very suspicious. It was one of those situations where I always think of it as, uh, in this case, it was a boyfriend, a significant other. I always think of it, whoever the perpetrator is, they're trying, like, too hard to make it look like they didn't do it. That's what it seems like to me. Yeah. Um, because this is a – it's a very strange situation. And people who aren't – you know, who haven't looked into 5 million crime cases, they think, like, oh, this will look like some random person took her or that she had car trouble and got out of the car and something happened to her. And, like, while I follow that – it's just it it that's not something that commonly occurs, right? Yeah. Um, unless you're in the mindset of like, I need to make this look like I didn't do it. Yeah. So it, for people who haven't got deep into this case, with Brooks Huck being arrested today, this is the fifth arrest in this case, and the sixth person linked to it. So. The way that runs down, I mentioned Danny Singleton. He was indicted in December of 2015. And then about a month later, two other men, a guy named Vincent Nethery and a guy named Donald Howard, they were charged with false reporting. And they admitted that they made up statements about Danny Singleton. So those people, the idea there was that Danny Singleton had killed Crystal Rogers and that Nethery and Howard had been the informants on that case. They were charged, and that didn't go so well. But Danny was attached to Brooks Huck as a, a either a former employee or an employee. He knew Crystal Rogers, and he, on more than one occasion, had gotten rides with Crystal Rogers. So there's that section of things. And now we've got Joseph being arrested, Joseph Lawson, in that indictment, which is available to see on the Kentucky courts. It says that Lawson agreed to aid one or more persons in the planning or commission of the crime or an attempt or solicitation to commit the crime when he and or a co-conspirator intentionally caused the death of another. He also destroyed, mutilated, concealed, removed, or altered physical evidence. He was not actually accused of killing Crystal Rogers, only in playing some role in her presumed death. So that's what he's going to be up for. And now we have... 
Brooks Hawk, who, you know, largely is the prime suspect all along, he has been arrested. And I'll say this, it's a, it's, this is an interesting tidbit. I don't know if I mentioned it in that episode or not, uh, the one that, where we covered this. His brother, Nick, investigators searched his police cruiser and they found traces of blood on a blanket and in the trunk of his police cruiser. So, Which is insane. Yeah. So the idea was maybe he had done something there to facilitate moving the body in a way that wouldn't arouse suspicion. Because the cop car is not going to get pulled over, right? Right. But also, I say that that's insane, but it is entirely possible. I don't know that they ever link the blood specifically to Crystal. I mean, I'm sure people bleed in police cars, right? It happens. Not usually in the trunk. No, you're right. Not in the trunk. But, you know, who knows? There could be a completely plausible explanation. He, no charges have been brought against him that we're aware of. Right. He, he ended up being dismissed in connection with that his was, statements. He and was, he failed a polygraph. Right. And so, having all that been said, I would say this is one of those possible Uh, This is a case that's possibly going to illustrate what I've said for years now about how when there's more than one person involved, eventually somebody talks. Yeah, I believe that may be the case here. I think they're going to, I mean, his arrest coming so quickly on the heels of Joseph Lawson's arrest, I'm guessing we're going to find out that those that's not a coincidence probably not um and uh like i said a lot of time it's either the person with the least amount of culpability that talks when they're put in the position to kind of be backed into a corner or squeezed or whatever you want to call it or it's the person with the most culpability trying to manipulate the situation so i think in this case Based on the and based on what he's been indicted for, uh, Joseph Lawson probably he he probably had no motivation to kill her. He probably had no desire to kill her. He was just somebody that was involved in a situation that occurred. He's not the focus of today's episode, but I wanted to bring this up because it's happening. You know, as as we're putting it everything together, literally happened just a few minutes ago. It's just crazy. We're sort of crossing over from the bedroom basher stories into something that's kind of related and, and not in time, but certainly it has some, some place stuff in common, but I saw some true crime news that I wanted to bring up. It was interesting because when I first saw it, I thought it was like related to an old case, but then you sent me something, I think a Fox news article and there was a people article and there was this Ithaca.com article about really sort of a strange series of events that uh, ultimately lead to like 10 arrests. And anytime I see that, I'm like, wait, what happened? It's actually a pretty sad story. This is about a 34-year-old man. From from all accounts, it looks like he was uh, in a homeless encampment. Fox News covered this, People, USA Today. This is all happening around the end of August, August 28th and August 29th of 2023. Uh, the headlines basically all read the same thing. It looks like a wire story. 10 arrested and disturbing and heinous kidnapping and murder. More arrests to come. 
And it says a missing persons case quickly evolved into a kidnapping and murder investigation that ended with the discovery of a shallow grave in upstate New York. Thomas Rath, depending on which article you read, it either says 33 or 34. I think it, I think 34 may be his age now, and 33 is maybe his age when this happened. Disappeared from a homeless encampment behind a Lowe's in Ithaca, New York, in an area called the Jungle on May the 20th. He was forcibly abducted by several people, which led dozens of law enforcement officers from several jurisdictions on a multi-county search. Police had a significant amount of interviews with people who live in the jungle. They executed over 40 search warrants, and they found his remains in a neighboring county on August the 3rd. As this missing persons case evolved, it revealed a particularly disturbing and a heinous series of events that ultimately revealed the kidnapping and murder of Mr. Rath. That's from Major Jeffrey Van Auken, who was um, the New York State Police Troop C commander, and he was the gentleman who's speaking in a press conference about this. So according to this, Monday, which would have been August the 28th, marked the 100th day since Thomas had been abducted. New York State Police Captain Lucas Anthony said 10 people are in custody and more arrests are pending. So Angelo Baez, 48, and Jonathan Glennon, 31, they were both charged with secondary murder. As of this recording, Jonathan Glennon is actually in an Auburn, Maine jail. The other suspects are ages 27 to 52, and they all face charges of first-degree kidnapping, as does Angelo Baez. So Angelo Baez is charged... He is charged with second-degree murder and kidnapping. Jonathan Glennon is charged with second-degree murder. These other suspects, Colleen Dillon, Zane Burlingame, Mark Beatty, Robert Hines, Naralda Sabrata Torres, Jack Benjamin Jr., Breland Varasi, and Justin Knapp, they've all been charged with varying crimes. And from what they're saying here... Captain Anthony says that Rath was familiar with at least some of these people. He said that authorities would address the motive during court proceedings for the alleged murder. It was not a random act. He said he wouldn't go as far as saying it was an orchestrated event, but it was an ongoing event from start to finish. And this is sort of a a sad and disturbing press conference even. But uh, Anthony said, Mr. Rath was the victim to us in law enforcement, but to his family, he was a father, a brother, and a son. Police did not say how he was killed, but they did say the alleged murder took place in Tioga County, New York. So that is where they're going to be prosecuting this case. What did you think of this? I think it's uh, pretty, I think it was probably a really chaotic investigation because uh, you've got a missing person who, from everything I could see, was mostly sort of transient anyway, right? Because he had lived in this homeless encampment. Yeah. And I'm going to go with, it's a lot of arrest, right? And I have a feeling, I, while they all face, uh, except for the two that are, are charged with the second-degree murder, they all face the first-degree kidnapping, except for Jonathan Glennon, it seems like. Uh, I think that they're going to have varying levels of involvement. I don't think it's necessarily going to be a situation where all these people, like, we're ganging up on this person all at once. I could be wrong, right? But I have a feeling it's the motives are probably going to end up being uh, like money to revenge probably is my guess. I don't know. I don't know if you've heard. They said that they were they did have motive to 
to speak about in court, right? Yeah, I, I, well, they haven't addressed it yet. So I sat down and watched some of the court appearances of these guys, which um, if you want to see them in hindsight, I think there's a Facebook group out there. It's called Ithaca Crime. And I think they also have a web page like IthacaCrime.com. You can find a lot of information about this case kind of ongoing on here. I get the, I know they had the press conference, they had the court appearances, and there were some other conversations going on on there with regards to this case. Uh, There's a lot, there's a lot of people, which complicates things. Do you have any idea of like they were visitors to the same homeless uh, encampment? So from what I read and from what I heard them talking about in court, a couple of these guys, uh, specifically Angel, uh, which is Angelo Baez, he appears to have been in this camp for like a long period of time, like like years. Right. And some of the others, I can't tell how much has gone on here where there are some, I'll say, infighting with like local authorities, not just police, but you can actually go and find, and Ithaca crime will probably have this by the time I'm talking about all of this. Uh, These guys are, I think they're either uh, town council meetings or board of commissioners meetings. There's a lot going on here where they're trying to kick some of these people out of here. But some of the people that are talking, it's, it's pretty controversial. There's a guy um, with Angel Baez in one of these like council meetings where this guy's uh, – his name is Richard Rivera. And Richard Rivera is on a board up there. Um, he's a community board member of the Reimagining of Public Safety Collaborative. So it's a group in upstate New York that has started – trying to create a plan for changing policing. And what's interesting about Richard Rivera being, he's not involved in this crime. He's just involved with some of these people. 40 years ago, when he was 16 years old, he shot and killed Robert Walsh, who was an off-duty New York police officer during a botched robbery in Queens. And he spent 39 years in prison for his murder. But while he was in there, he earned his degree. He got released on parole. And he is part of not only the Reimagining Public Safety Collaborative or uh, RPSC, he's also a part of several of the Tompkins County homeless programs. And so Tompkins County is where Ithaca is located. So that's where the jungle is. This guy's been on NPR and some other stuff. Now, I don't think he's connected to this group of people, but I'll just say that like he's in the same meetings. And if you go looking for like like good images of Angel Baez, who you could write off as like he's a homeless guy. Well, regardless of whether he's homeless or not, he's in on these different meetings about public safety. He's sitting and speaking and he's uh, just behind uh, Richard Ramirez, both uh, seated, seated with him and then like speaking at similar times in some of these meetings. I don't know what that means related to all of this case or like how that comes to be, but I, I can tell you that's in Tompkins County. 
so Tioga County is the county that's immediately south of Tompkins County. These are pretty small areas. You've been to upstate New York quite a bit. Tompkins County has a population of probably 110,000 people today. But Tioga County is a little more rural and it probably has about half the people, about 40, 45,000 people. Um, it is just west of Binghamton and it's like directly north of uh, the Pennsylvania border. So they sort of took this guy out from the jungle to a place to, it, that he normally wouldn't be discovered. Uh, and it did take some time because he goes missing in May. His body is found in August, I believe. That's what it said. Uh, I'm interested to see kind of how all this shakes out. Uh, there's some, there's definitely some interesting components to this that I think will keep it in the news. Sadly, I think this will kind of fall off the radar, except for the fact that like there's so many. There's a pe- lot of people involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I do think that, uh, you know, kudos to the investigators for finding him. Uh, I don't know that they've positively identified him. I don't think I saw that exactly. But basically, um, they said that the investigation of his missing persons case has led them to a shallow grave, right? Yeah. So that is indicative that they have found uh, his remains or remains. And so, you know, you've got a situation where according to the information that's available, this young man, uh, 33 or 34 year old son and father is a, he, he's associated with a homeless encampment and the police are called to, uh, you know, do a welfare check on him. And they didn't just blow it off, right? They actually dug into this until on the 100th day, they were able to announce that, you know, they're working towards a conclusion here, which include two people being charged with murder and uh, several others with a total of 10 receiving charges and a lot of them receiving uh, first degree kidnapping charges. You know, I don't know anything about this particular victim, but in my in what I envision in uh, homeless encampments, you know, I imagine you know it, the struggle's real, right? And there's probably a whole lot of issues within because they're from what I've seen, they're kind of communities within the community, right? Yes, you've got people that are, um, you know, they they have their territorial about you know where they're at. Uh, a lot of times, there's there can be drugs. Uh, with the same drug issues the community faces, except in a more condensed kind of surrounding. You're going to have, you, you said that the angel, Angelo Baez, he sounds like he's a leader of sorts, right? He, he's at least a supporter. Like, so where I saw him in, in terms of time, so this is prior to his arrest, on August the 16th, he's speaking in one of these meetings where they're trying to figure out what to do with this area they call the jungle. And everybody that has a problem or is an opponent to the jungle is pointing out there's a lot of drug issues going on. I just want to throw that out there. So it's not just that it's a, a community within a community. It is. But it's also it seems to be where the riffraff are hanging out. Well, right. And, um, and you know, drug uh, use, drug trafficking, drug drugs are often associated with homelessness, right? I mean, not always, but uh, things go hand in hand a lot of times. And uh, that can make people act 
certain ways. And my mind immediately gravitated towards that with this number of people being involved. And, you know, each of them had to have did something, probably not the full act of the crime that they're charged with, but they're going to satisfy one of those elements. And it'll be interesting to see if we get an actual story. Now, you know, I, I'm sure that they're all going to get public defenders, but if I were one of the people that had been charged with kidnapping, I would be telling all right now to get well, out of that situation. Uh, well, my understanding is they've been telling all, and that's how this is all coming together. Okay. I mean, even in, and, and I'm not bashing this guy at all when I say this, but I'm just going to say the state of things is Angel Baez talking in this video, he points out that he's got an ankle monitor on. And that's on August the 16th. Oh, yeah. So he's all like, he's, he's not unknown to law enforcement. Like, you know, whatever is happening here is terrible. This is, and, and in my opinion, when you get these unsanctioned encampments, and I'll say that a couple of people affiliated with the show, they are part of different governments who deal with things like this. It's actually quite a fascinating thing to watch a city have to regulate this. And they do it in a way, whether it's – and depending on the city that you're in, it could be boarding homes. It could be homeless encampments. It could be uh, like a certain type of low-income housing that, that – these areas are known to be high risk. And when the city goes to regulate it and to provide guidance and ordinances, they are genuinely looking to assist the residents at large – it's hard to know which residents could potentially be involved in something like this when you're doing that. But if you're walking around in an ankle monitor and he's, I don't believe, yeah, he is actually charged with second degree. So he and John are charged with second degree and, and Baez is also charged with kidnapping. Right. But the other guy isn't. Right. So, you know, whatever happens here, I, New York is a felony murder state. I'm just saying Oh, yeah. Well, and like I said, I don't know. Whenever I see that distinction made, as far as you've got like two guys charged with second degree murder, one of which is also charged with uh, first degree kidnapping while that charge is absent from Jonathan Glennon, right? There are all these other people charged with first degree kidnapping. That sounds like all of those people were involved in getting the victim, Thomas Rath, to Jonathan Glennon. That's what it reads like to me. Yeah, because like, and then Jonathan Glennon, along with Angel Baez, Angelo Baez, they he was somehow involved, right? Yeah, if you go back and you look, if you if you take Jonathan Glennon's name, and I I just ran it briefly using, a, I was looking for like a link between this. It looks like John Glennon's parents lived in Granville, New York. Mm-hmm. And I, I found an obituary mentioning that his dad uh, had passed away in, I think, 2010 or 2011. So Granville, New York, is in Washington County. So it's also, like, next door to Rutland County, Vermont, which we've talked about under other circumstances. The bottom line is, like, there's a reason for this guy to have been up there. If he's up to no good or he's entrenched in that community, well, then... I'm not super surprised because it looks like, you know, if he's living in Maine, traveling down there doesn't look like that big a deal 
So, yeah, I could see a scenario where he knows the locals and for whatever reason this guy is into him, whether it's, like you said, money or some kind of revenge situation or drug situation, which falls back under money. Something is going on here where I think this is going to have a much broader effect than people realize on how the jungle is treated in the future. Because if they've got murders coming out of this homeless encampment, people are going to start to look at it from the perspective of shutting it down. And uh, Angel Bias has been there for multiple years. I mean, there's so much, like, political irony involved in the subject of, like, closing down a homeless encampment, right? Yeah. Um, Because, you know, it's not a neighborhood to begin with, right? Right. Um, It's... It's a it's an un- unfortunate situation, and nobody's there because they really want to be. I would imagine. I will be interested to see if we can't get just you know at least the story. Um, I I do feel really bad for Thomas Rath, um, and his family. Right. Um, yeah. I also I maintain that you know I don't know how I I did find where they did say that his remains were found in that shallow grave. At first, I was a little bit confused, but. Um, I, it seems like they did wrap that up and he has for certain been found, but, you know, kudos to the investigators for put, for solving this missing person's case. Right. Yeah. Um, because this is the kind of like nightmare thing that would like fall through the cracks. I have no idea why Thomas Rath was at the homeless encampment. Uh, it happens and somebody cared about him enough to say like, Oh wait, I haven't heard from him. Right something that could have very easily fallen through the cracks and they very easily could have gotten away with has been thwarted. Right. And it's, they're not going to get away with that. Yeah. They, so uh, it looks like all of this sort of either coincides or stems from, I can't tell if they were doing a knock and talk with this guy or what, but Jonathan Glennon was arrested separate of everybody else. He actually, he got arrested. Uh, he's in the arrest logs for July 28th through August the 3rd, having been arrested at uh, his home or close to his home for unlawful possession of over 200 milligrams of methamphetamine and for violating the conditions of his release on another charge. That seems to be going down on Wednesday, August the 2nd. And then Tom Rath's body is found on uh, Thursday, August the 3rd. So I'm guessing he tried to roll that off on someone and and that's how we end up at 10 people. Right. Yeah. I, I am. I've got to see, I've got to know whatever <laughs> comes out about the 10 people being charged with first degree kidnapping of the same person. Cause that's insane. It, it, it is unusual. These guys, uh, it looks like everybody on here has got a record. I don't, you know, I don't know how this is going to go. You know, you, you send me like these, these chunks of news. And I started with this one because we're dealing with like one of those odd serial killers in, in this episode. And it's almost like these could be tied from the perspective of high risk this guy's a high-risk victim killer and or would have been at the time. And this situation, I think, is a high-risk situation for most of the people that live in the jungle. Um, that always, you know, there's always something. That's a very interesting parallel you're drawing there. I, I agree. I will have to let everybody figure it out for themselves, though, because of 
it's hard to explain. Well, so, this guy's the victim, but he, he, everybody involved in the news case we just talked about could very well parallel this, our, our other case, right? Right. And I mean, that's a lot of times, that's how I'm tying the news to what we're talking about this in the current cases. Or um, something really, uh, really uh, eye catching that occurred and it has nothing to do with what else we're talking about. Yeah. So where I'm going next. Do you have anything else on Thomas Rath and, like, this situation right now? No. Um, I will swing back around to it if something interesting comes up. But um, it for now, uh, he an, a missing homeless man's case was resolved in 100 days. And I feel like that is uh, – I mean, it, it unfortunately, the outcome was that they found his remains. But I feel like it's awesome that that's not just going to be hanging out there open forever and ever with no resolution. Yeah, I think it's a sign of what I hope is a sign of the times, like these cases being resolved like this. It's interesting if, if you look at the number of counties and the number of uh, like local agencies involved. It's a, This is a big case, like just in terms of resources already put into it. I, I really think it starts at that August 2nd arrest, but I think everybody had already been talking about this having happened, and that's how they we— They were talking to him for some reason, right? I mean— Yeah, they, they went into—and he was already out on some kind of—he um, was on bond, so he had pretrial release conditions that he wasn't meeting, and they found him with over 200 milligrams of meth. Well, and, and it makes me wonder, like, because he he's in jail in Maine, so that's where he got picked up at, right? Yeah, he got picked up. So basically he – I don't want to give away the guy's address. I'm sure people can find it on the internet. But basically he got picked up two blocks over from where he lives. Say he lives in the 200 block. Say he lives at um, 310 Main Street. He got picked up at 110 Main Street. Right. And, I mean, usually in pre-trial release, like you wouldn't be able to travel from Maine to New York just sort of willy-nilly. I don't know how – out he how far out he was from you definitely shouldn't be so you know that kind of factors into my thinking there right yeah you typically have to have you, you have to have permission of whatever supervising body and so depending on where you're at that could be that like you sort of have a probation officer or a pre-trial officer that's in charge of you it could be that you actually have to report to the court either through your attorney or like through the clerk of court's office so any kind of travel like that i'm sure it it's going to boggle my mind if this guy didn't want to violate the terms of his pretrial release to kill this dude. I'm guessing that's not what happened. I don't think these people brought him, brought Tom Rath out of the jungle and took him to Maine because he's in the next, he's in the South County from there. So basically, they traveled just far enough away to not associate him with the jungle. Yeah, I, I don't think that they took him to Maine either. And they said basically, whatever happened to him appears to have all happened within a several hours of him disappearing on May 20th. Right, which is still a, that's a lot of hands, you know, involved in kidnapping over, a, you know, just a couple of hours or however long it was. I, I, I think it's going to just end up being, you know, something that has a very classic motive and it's just going to be a very sad situation. Well, I throw all the elements out there so people can make their own decisions on what it was about. Because I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like point and say that person was doing this thing because that's not my job. I'm just here to report sure. that this guy was arrested for a large quantity of methamphetamine and violating his release terms. And sure. you know, just 
draw whatever line you want to from there, and we'll hear about the rest in court, is my opinion. Where we're going from this case is uh, one of the first famous serial killers. And I don't think this is all going to wrap up in one episode, but it might. What I'm going to try and do is tell you guys a little bit about him today. And there's sort of a sprawling spree that goes on. So we're probably only going to get through the first year uh, in terms of me talking about it and then getting feedback from you. And then we'll come back, we'll finish up like sort of what happens and we'll, but I don't want, you know, people to be left hanging. Uh, This was the first famous serial killer in the 20th century in America. Now, he was also the first serial killer because of the timing of all this, that whose crimes were subject to widespread media attention. So newspapers, magazines, and what at the time was a brand new thing, the radio, covered this guy's case incessantly. And once he gets caught, he's actually international news for a long time. Now, his confirmed murder count remained the highest murder count in North America until 1971. So we're going back in time quite a bit, but that was 50 years. He was the most prolific serial killer in the United States. And Let me just ask you this. Before I pointed him out to you and tied him back to the other stuff that we had been talking about, had you ever even heard of this guy or his crimes? I had not. And and I have found that that is the case with every conversation I have about him. Right. And uh, it's actually really hard to find uh, much information about him now. It is. He's, he's prolific in a number of regards. One of the most interesting things is, uh, Harold Schechter, who he's an American true crime writer who specializes in serial killers. And he actually teaches in the realm of American literature and myth criticism. But he and David Everett have done quite a bit of work related to this guy. And they have uh, an encyclopedia of serial killers that they released. I think it was in like 2006, maybe. Um, And this guy has an entry in there. He is the first serial sex murderer of the 20th century in America. And that's a huge deal because it expands what most people know of serial murder from the perspective of. I think people think of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s into the 90s as being, I called it a golden era. You called it a rusted era. We'll just call it a prime time for famous serial killers to get media and press coverage that in a lot of cases has endured. And And it was unprecedented, right? It was was completely unprecedented. This guy was unprecedented for his time. And it always baffles me that he is not more well-known. I, you know, I, I'm not sure why. Do you have any idea why? Well. Just because it is so, because, you know, we're talking about a situation where I feel like what 
the explosion of the serial killer phenomenon was, I think that the crux of that, pretty much like Ted Bundy's trial being televised, right? Yeah. That's where, like, I mean, that was just, it was unheard of. It was, what wasn't it unheard of at the time for a well, murder trial to be televised? It, it wasn't the first. It was the most sensational. Okay. Well, and, you know, but it was a big deal, right? Yeah. It was a death penalty case for serial murder that. He was it, representing himself. He was representing himself. There was a lot going on there that. Uh, it was it was the first time that it had been happening. But, you know, we have these moments where, like John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer, their discoveries and their detentions, they had similar effects. But you're right, in terms of being in a court, Bundy was front and center personality and voice. And, and so I think that because that is sort of like a, a now it, it may just be for me that that's a jumping off point, but nothing about the killer that we're talking about today can compare to that sort of media frenzy. Right. Correct. And so that might be why, uh, you know, he just fell through the cracks and, you know, he doesn't come up. Right. Because there isn't like, you know, a ton of media coverage and a ton of I mean, I guess there would be maybe some archives somewhere on him, but it's just not front and center enough. Like, you know, the Ted Bundy's and the Jeffrey Dahmer's and the John Wayne Gacy's where all that stuff is right there to see so much more of. Right. Yeah. I have another theory and I'll get into that as we go, because the first part of this guy's life is really strange. And I think the reason that he disappears into the, the, the shadows, so to speak, of sensational crimes is because he was considered to be so mentally unwell that people questioned why he was loose in the first place. And that is rare. Like, it's, it's an interesting distinction for me to call Ted Bundy different from this guy because realistically, these guys are very similar. This guy is very similar to Bundy. But the difference is from a very early age, people made observations of this guy. Maybe something was wrong. So let's we're just going to start off with like his – like the basics about him in his early life. So this killer's name is Earl Leonard Farrell. Now, he's known by another name by the time he gets caught, but that's how he starts out life. And as Earl Leonard Farrell was born on May 12th, 1897 in San Francisco, California. His mom was from England. Her name was Francis Nelson. His father was from Spain. His name was James Farrell. Both of his parents died of syphilis when he was a toddler. So Earl was sent to live with his maternal grandmother, Jenny Nelson, and he ends up taking her name later. Jenny Nelson was a devout Pentecostal who raised him alongside her two younger children, Willis and Lillian. Do you know much about like the, the Pentecostal movement? I, I know more than I care to know about it, yeah. Okay, so in a nutshell... The Pentecostal movement is a fairly uh, radical movement. What's important about it here is that 
it had sort of died out. And like, if you go like looking for like the, the cliff notes on this early Pentecostals, they had considered the move, uh, the Pentecostal movement to be a restoration of the Pentecostal church's apostolic power. So they were bringing Christianity back to the Pentecostal community. And I would say one of them, and I don't really, you know, I know I, we're not going to get deep into this, but I, I think it could be relevant. One of the biggest parts of the Pentecostal faith is you can uh, lose your salvation. Correct. And so that that's that differs from other denominations of Christianity, and it affects a lot of the teachings, a lot of the expectations that one would experience if they were part of that, right? Yes. Okay. And another part of Pentecostalism that's important to this case is something called uh, xenolalia or xenoglossia. Have you ever heard of that before? Have you ever seen it? I don't know. So there, uh, xenoglossia is a paranormal phenomenon allegedly oh, from in tongues yeah. Oh, yeah um it's it's it is allegedly the ability to speak write or understand a foreign language that they never could have acquired through normal natural methods can you tell t- can you say the word again xenoglossia or xenolalia depends on okay. who's writing about it that's interesting. I've never heard those terms, but I am uh, I am familiar with the phenomenon of uh, speaking in tongues. There was a guy in the early revivals of Pentecostalism, which so that the, I, I mentioned this because it ties into the timeline of our story. But between 1900 and 1929, there was a guy named Charles Fox Parham, and he was an independent uh, Pentecostal evangelist, and he strongly believed in divine healing. He was an important figure to the reemergence of Pentecostalism as its own distinct thing. Now, he had been raised as a a Methodist, and uh, he had been – I think he was in Kansas for a period of time. He started a school there called the Bethel Bible School, and he taught that speaking in tongues was scriptural evidence for the reception of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't get deep into, like, religious stuff, but – it's not just the Pentecostalism here that's interesting. It's this idea of speaking in a language that you have not learned and could not possibly understand that comes to be important. Now, the early revival of Pentecostalism sort of dies out around the end of the Depression. And when that happens, our story is over. Jenny Nelson, the maternal grandmother, is a devout Pentecostal. And she is raising Earl Farrell as Earl Nelson. Willis and Lillian are her children, and they are – Willis is 10 years older than Earl, and Lillian is 8 years older than Earl. So they're not really – I don't know if if you've experienced that with an older sibling that's that far away in time. They're not ever going to be that close. Now They're also not that far away either because they're aunt and uncle. Right, right. So Nelson, as, as he starts to go into school, he is exhibiting behaviors that are documented as self-loathing. And he's also, uh, according to Schechter's entry 
And I think it's the original encyclopedia entry that has this. Uh, they call it morbid behaviors. I don't know what he's meaning there, but uh, according to Schechter, Earl Nelson gets expelled from the Agassiz Primary School in San Francisco. Guess how old he is when he gets expelled? Seven? He's seven years old. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So around age 10, and we talked about this earlier in the year, he coll- he's riding his bicycle down a street in San Francisco, and he collides with a streetcar. Now, the streetcars or trams or trolleys, whatever you want to call them, you can still see these in tra- San Francisco today. That would be a formidable thing to run into with a bicycle. Oh, yeah. Earl Nelson was unconscious in a uh, in what was believed to be a coma for six days when this happened. Six days. When he wakes up, his behavior is off, and he starts to complain of headaches, and he starts to complain of memory loss. He gets the nickname or moniker during this time as a psychotic prodigy. This is a world pre-Ed Gain, okay? You know who Ed Gain is, right? Yes. Okay. So the things that like we know about like serial killers today and the things that we associate with different killers, they're not going to take place for another 50 years. But this kid is doing a lot of weird stuff, including displaying signs of hypomania in childhood. He starts talking to invisible people who aren't there. He is compulsively quoting biblical passages. And he starts to watch his sister and his maternal grandmother, who's acting as his mom, while they are bathing and undressing. Jenny Nelson notes that Earl would go to school in freshly clean clothes and he would return home in rags as though he had gone out of his way to exchange his clothes with a homeless person. Earl's strong religious upbringing was a huge influence in his life at this time and it stays with him until he hits puberty. He is obsessed with the book of Revelation as a teenager. Now, in his early teenage years, Earl begins to frequent brothels and sex workers and bars on uh, in the Barbary Coast Red Light District. Do you know anything about the Barbary Coast District? Very little. Okay, so the Barbary Coast, during the second half of the 19th and the early 20th centuries, uh, this was the area that you would go where they had dance halls, they had concert saloons. It was they like had, every other red light district right, they before had, it was regulated. Right. So this is this is the place that you went to have fun. Friday, a Friday night or a Saturday night to unwind. Yeah, to have fun. This was also the place that you were most likely to find gambling. You could buy off local officials. You could definitely get your ass beat for doing something wrong. This is particularly interesting because there was a gold rush in 1849. And a lot of what was left over from the San Francisco gold rush was still going on in the Barbary Coast district, even in this in the early 1900s. Now, what's interesting about it is there was a huge earthquake in this area in 1906. And before the earthquake in 1906, 
San Francisco had been going through a huge commercial growth and had become one of the most important shipping ports on the West Coast. And it had matured to a level that everything was sort of under control in the Barbary Coast, even though the Barbary Coast itself was kind of lawless, because San Francisco back then only had about 120 police officers. And every year they would do an annual report. And at least on paper, it looked like the Barbary Coast was under control. Now, most of the buildings on Pacific Street district, I guess, we're call it, let's call it a red light district. So the red light district or the entertainment district, most of the buildings there are destroyed by the earthquake and the subsequent fire of 1906. That was supposed to be the moment that it sort of got cleaned up and everything about that area became more mainstream, I guess would be the word. Acceptable to the mainstream, sure. Right. Unfortunately, that's not what happened. So during the time that Earl Nelson is living there, because he's very young at this point, this guy is born, if he's born in, if he's born in 1897, so he's basically 10 years old when the earthquake happens, nine or 10. um, And we know he's been having trouble. So he's a teenager. Let's say, his teen years end, he becomes 20 in 1917, right? Correct. Okay. So if he's going to be 20 in 1917, then what's strange about that is Mayor James Rolfe won't make the decision to close the brothels until 1917. And even then, there were still some elements that like lived on beyond that declaration. But in the meantime, some bad stuff happened to Earl. Earl, according to multiple articles that I pulled up on him, including one from the San Francisco Examiner that says, Beastly Man began landlady killing spree in San Francisco by a guy named Paul Drexler. He got a venereal disease during this time, which that can't help him. So he's progressing through puberty He's turning into like a pretty well-built, if a little chunky, kid. And he's starting to entertain his family with some weird things. And this is going to be based on the time as well. Like, are you familiar with like sort of vaudeville in general? Okay, so one of the things about like vaudeville, if you go back and like look at the time and the place of, uh, I think of Houdini, even though that's like technically not vaudeville, that's this this time frame. Because Houdini is probably known starting in like the late 1890s, um, and he's he's pulling these like feats of strength, and he starts his escapism and his acts. Um, and he and Houdini ends up dying in 1926, I think. I think he dies Christmas 1926 thereabouts. So it's right before this happens. Some of the things that Earl Nelson is doing look like what Houdini had been doing. He's uh, walking around on his hands. He's lifting heavy objects with his teeth. He's sort of behaving like he's auditioning for vaudeville. Right. And vaudeville um, is largely uh, time and place wise. It's people trying to uh, find ways to entertain themselves and others with, uh, you know, maybe not the same resources that are available now. Yeah, that's exactly what is happening. Before he even turns 20, Earl Nelson starts getting into trouble. He ends up sentenced to two years in San Quentin prison in 1915. 
Okay, so he's 18 years old. He gets sentenced to two years for breaking into a, a rural cabin in Plymouth County. He thought that the cabin was abandoned. Turns out it was not abandoned. It was owned. And he gets some pretty deep shit because of it. He ends up being paroled for the offense on September 6th of 1916. But he pretty much is only out for about five months. And he gets arrested again in Stockton, California on March 9th, 1917 for a petty larceny offense or like a shoplifting offense. So because of that, he spends another six months incarcerated. He gets discharged after this March 9th incident and then the conviction. And then he gets arrested in Los Angeles on burglary charges. And he spends about five months in the Los uh, Angeles County Jail. So the Los Angeles County Jail, 1917 into 1918, was not the most secure place on the planet. So what do you think this guy does? I think that he probably escaped. He escapes. He did his own Houdini. He, he escapes. So sometime in late 1917, Earl Nelson enlists in the U.S. military, which is something that we hear about with a lot of these guys recently. But he ends up becoming a deserter after only six weeks. He repeats this pattern on several occasions. He And this is how he uh, comes to be known as Earl Nelson, by the way. He uses different variations of Earl Leonard Farrell and Earl Nelson with those other names to enlist in multiple branches. He basically checks in, starts basic training. He gets his uniforms. He gets set up. And he deserts. In 1918, Earl ends up being committed to the Napa State Mental Hospital after behaving oddly and erratically during one of his brief stints in the United States Navy. According to a Navy psychologist during this time, Earl was living in a constitutional psychotic state. So he gets to Napa State Mental Hospital, and a psychologist who observes him on May 21st of 1918 notes that he appears mostly normal. He does not appear violent, he does not appear homicidal, and he does not appear destructive. Later on, William Pritchard, who's a psychiatrist, he conducts a preliminary interview with Earl, and he notes that Earl tells him about hallucinations and what he describes as potentially paranoid delusions. Specifically, Pritchard says that Earl has seen faces He's heard music when there is no music playing, and that at times he believed that people were poisoning him or attempting to poison him. He said that voices sometimes whisper for Earl to kill himself. Earl says that if he were kept in jail, he would get something sharp and figure out how to cut the veins in his wrist. Pritchard also indicated that Earl had experienced occipital headaches, that he had fainted several times, and that he sometimes felt dizzy during their interactions, which this is some of the same behavior that we saw at different times with Bobby Joe Long. Yes. Earl has a head injury. While he was riding a bicycle, he ran into that cable car. That's documented. And then he has this on paper as being sort of proof that he's either malingering about it, meaning he could be making it all up or Earl is actually having some pretty serious issues during his institutionalization at the Napa state mental hospital, 
Earl managed to escape three different times before staff eventually stopped trying to locate him. It may be more than that because I've seen where it's multiple attempts and, and then multiple actual escapes. But his frequent escapes earned him the nickname Houdini among the hospital's employees, who we were just talking about. Now, Earl ends up being formally discharged from the Navy on May 17, 1919, as being in absentia. It's not quite AWOL, but it basically means you haven't shown up to do what you're supposed to do, and you're a place that they know where you are, but they're not coming to get you. So his file at this point in time is officially closed with the hospital, and they make a note indicating that Earl, over time, had improved. So Earl has acquired a job working as a janitor at St. Mary's Hospital, which is in uh, San Francisco, California. It's open to today, uh, St. Mary's Medical Center now, and it's uh, currently operated by Dignity Health out there. But he had been using the pseudonym there, Evan Lewis Fuller. And there he met a woman who was 60 years old named Mary Martin. She was, a, she was an administrative worker at St. Mary's. The two of them began to date. And in August of 1919, Earl, as Evan, and Mary get married. Their marriage was short-lived because Earl, according to Martin, made her life a living hell. He had uh, religious delusions. He had jealous rages. He had bizarre sexual demands that he foisted upon her and increasingly violent behavior. This kid's 22 years old, and he's married to a 60-year-old woman. Who is he looking for? Let's just put it out there. Well, clearly he's marrying his grandmother. Or um, he's looking for his mom or his grandma. Yeah. Um, I I know it's right here somewhere. Um, when was it? She died two years after the big uh, earthquake in San Francisco. So when did she die? With who? Uh, his grandmother. She died in 1908. 1908. Okay. No. You know what, Jenny? Jenny died in 1908. I'm sorry. His mom died in 1899. Right. And grandma dies uh, less than 10 years later. Right. Okay. So he, he was like about uh, 11, right? Right. When she died. Yeah. And he ends up, so when he's 11 years old, he ends up for a little while living with his older siblings, who are also his aunt and uncle, which is another thing we have seen before. Right. And so he was essentially, uh, it, you know, we got to think about this because he was a small child. And since we haven't really gotten into his crimes yet, as a small child, he lost both of his parents in a very short amount of time before he was two years old. Yep. He is then sent to live with his very religious maternal grandmother where, so he's, you know, around two, he's got suddenly has two older siblings that are his, also his aunt and uncle. Um, by the age of seven, he's being kicked out of school. By the age of 10, he, a set of circumstances arises where he can collide with a street car, causing him a head injury uh, that makes him lose consciousness for six days, right? Yes. That's at the age of 10. And then it seems like maybe the, within the next year or two, uh, he loses his grandmother who has been his mother figure. Yep. Okay. And then he goes on to uh, live with his his sister aunt, 
who would have been about 20-ish at the time. And I believe she had gotten married and everything. Yeah. Okay, so I believe that's about where we're at. Yeah, as well, okay. Oh, wait, and then he got married. Sorry. <laughs> wait, wait, but hold on. But he's also been to prison multiple times. Right. And okay. he's, he's joined multiple branches of the U.S. military. And he's also been institu- institutionalized and released from all of those things. Right. And so after kind of, um, I don't know what you saw about him as far as like how he was going in and out of the military. I thought it was crazy. I couldn't believe he was able to get away with it. Then uh, he, it, it's so interesting because the first real relationship he sought was one with a woman who was three times his age. Yeah. And it lasts about six months. They cohabitate for about six months. And Mary Martin says, I don't know who you are. I can't stand where you're going. And I don't want to have anything else to do with you. Um, she does later recall because of the, what, sort of sprawls out over the next few years. Um, she does later recall that uh, the different very, the, the different bizarre behaviors that she witnessed while living with him was he would leave the house and not come back for days. Um, he would pour glasses of water over his toes and he had other unusual bathing practices that she goes into. in some of these sources, uh, the bottom line is she didn't know what to do with him. And she, after they get married in August of 1919, she's with him for about six months and still attached to him for another month or so. But by the middle of uh, 1920, she has nothing to do with him. Right, but they're only ever separated. Right. So. What is the deal? She, I believe she is this, maybe the second, possibly the third person to mention him leaving the house and returning in other people's clothing. That looks like... Well, yes. what is happening there? That is the strangest thing to me. I don't know if he's getting into fights. I don't know if he's uh, deliberately doing something to his clothing. We never really get a good sense of anything. Like we see the results of it. Like we don't actually see the behaviors themselves until a little after this. By the time she is separating from him in 1920, what we know about this guy is that like we probably wouldn't hang out with him for very long. But we don't know why. We just know he's going to end up in a hospital, a mental hospital, a jail, or he's going to rejoin the service or something. I I he's going to be in. He's just somebody nobody wants to deal with. Yeah. And, you know, it's really unfortunate because it's a mixture of his behavior and how people are treating him that sort of begin to change him. Largely in 1920, he disappears. There's some ideas of what he may have been up to that we'll talk about as we sort of get further down this list of crazy stuff he's done. But none of that happens in 1920. And I point that out because where he pops back up on the radar, it's probably a good stopping point for today. Um, I said I was going to go through more than I'm going through. But the truth is, like, it's going to take a minute to digest this guy. So here's what I'm going to say to to wrap up my side of the first episode about Earl. On May 19th of 1921, so a full year after he's gotten separated and moved out from Mary Martin, Earl shows up at 1519 Pacific Avenue in San Francisco. He's dressed as a plumber. He uses that disguise, posing as the plumber, to enter that residence 
and he attempts to molest a 12-year-old girl named Mary Summers in the basement. She screams, and she attracts help from her older brother. When she does that, Earl flees. He's captured a few hours later riding on a San Francisco trolley car. And at a competency hearing, he is found to be dangerous, and he is recommitted back into the Napa State Mental Hospital. He's going to be there, sort of, until 1925. But he would escape again on two occasions in there before he's finally discharged. Do you think that's a relatively good place to, to wrap up episode one there? I do. I think it's a good place. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CrimeXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours, and I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. 
Pure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality all-natural real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so... I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be X. S. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations. If you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making. But Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. 
Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, white peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS, and it's time for you to share your story today. <laughs> 